Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help you bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and just figure out life. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our Young Adult Services, or at our General Services, Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you enjoy. We are in a series entitled Hot Topics, right? We've been through it for five weeks now. And uh, here's why we're doing this series. In my time as a pastor, I've been working here for 11 years or so. And uh, I know I've, I have gray in my beard now. Um, that's how long I've been here. Uh, and so in my time as a pastor, I realized there are three types of people that kind of interact with faith and kind of religious practices and things like that. The first, I guess we'll call is the skeptic. If you're here today and you're an atheist, agnostic, whatever it is, you're like, this whole thing is garbage. You're a skeptic. Glad you're here. This is why I do what I do. Please come talk with me after. I'm sure you're an intelligent person that has great questions of why you don't believe what I believe, right? You're welcome here. And again, I've said this week in and week out, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Just the guy with the mic, so you're forced to listen to me, right? And so uh, the skeptic, someone who doesn't believe in God, atheist, anti-theist, right? So A is, it just means no, I don't believe in, and theist is God, right? Or you're an agnostic, which is like, meh. Maybe whatever. Maybe you're an apathetic where you're like, I don't even care about whatever it is, right? And the next person I would say is probably the satisfied, and that's probably that you believe in God, right? In fact, 96% of the American population believe in a God. In fact, you may say that you're religious. In fact, when someone says, hey, are you religious? You would say, well, I grew up Catholic or Christian or insert some other type of um, orthodox or mainstream religion. But as kind of as far as like religious practices go, like church ain't your thing, right? Like you're here because there's that girl you like that's cute or whatever, right? Or for whatever reason, you're here, right? And maybe the times you do go to church, it's probably for like, I don't know, Christmas, maybe Easter. We call you Christers uh, or whatever, right? But the whole like, the whole like religious thing isn't really, <clears throat> isn't really you. Now, most importantly, right, you kind of believe that you and God are chill. Like, you're like, we're homies. Like, he's, he's cool with me. I'm like, you know, like, you kind of think that, like, God grades on a curve, like that cool biology teacher you had. And, like, you know, at least, like, like you know, as long as you're not as bad as, like, Adolf, right, you're like, you're chilling. You're like, you're in the good category. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're like Jesus and I are homies. As long as, you know, I don't adopt all of Hitler's philosophies, whatever it is, we're chilling, right? Uh, and so you kind of feel good. Now, I guess the last category is the spiritual, right? So we got the skeptic, the satisfied, the spiritual. And the spiritual is that you're religious, not uh, you're not religious, you're spiritual, right? This is probably the operating worldview for most millennials and Gen Z, i.e., if you're in this room, you're probably one of those, right? And you believe kind of in a higher power and that things kind of seem to happen for a reason. Like, it's kind of like a chanting call of people that are in this category, right? I'm spiritual. Um, I don't know, same, some things just kind of seem to happen for a reason, or you have a karmic view of the world. You give cause and effect kind of thing, right? And so uh, I guess the one that I hear more and more in this category, is you kind of reject man-made institutions like religion, like Christianity, churches, because you think, again, they're man-made, and they were created to exert authority over the masses, kind of Karl Marx's kind of philosophy and all of that, right? And so I've also heard here, right, that you maybe reject Christianity, and here's probably the most popular one, and it's got some truth in it, because Christians are hypocrites, and they're bigots, and they're closed-minded, and whatever it may be. And so, uh, especially on issues dealing with morality and ethics, especially truth and maybe even heaven and hell. So we've been in this series, Hot Topics, Conversations on Controversies. I need you to know the church is willing to have conversations that maybe it wasn't willing to in the past. And uh, again, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, just got the mic. And so we have, over the last handful of weeks, journeyed through some touch, tough cultural, uh, moral, ethical uh, kind of issues, maybe scientific and philosophical ones. Week one, we talked about abortion, and I gave you purely scientific evidence and philosophical evidence. I didn't even use the Bible until the end about grace and mercy and that God forgives and he's got to love. 
Um, but I gave you purely, I gave you 10 arguments specifically on uh, a taxonomical chart, on chromosomal fingerprints, and a plethora of other things that the unborns have, and whatever. So we walked all through that. And if you, don't, if you weren't here, you didn't listen to it, go into our podcast. Just go to Seacoast Grace Young Adults on uh, any of the podcast apps, and you'll find it. But anyways, week one abortion, I gave, I gave you some scientific evidence why I believe the pro-life argument significantly, scientifically outweighs the pro-choice arguments. Week two, we talked about marriage. Uh, we said that we can discover God's definition of marriage, but we do not have the authority to redefine it because it wasn't something that we created. So then week three, we talked about gay marriage. I gave you sociological and theological evidence of why natural marriage is better. And then finally, last week, I wasn't here. I was at camp, which I'm a little tired today because I just got back yesterday um, with a bunch of high school students. Uh, Tim spoke about the reliability of the New Testament, the way that scripture was compiled. You can also get that on our podcast. Today, we're going to be kind of picking up a really important and challenging question. And it's a question that many of you guys have been asking me to kind of talk about over the last handful of months. And here's the question we're going to be spending a little bit of time wrestling through today. Why? Why would a loving and good God send people to hell? Right? How? How could a good, loving, merciful, forgiving, kind God send people to this place called hell? Back when I was 17, in this room many years ago, uh, we were invited as a high school minister on Wednesday night to invite some friends that didn't believe what we believed and to have conversations about things that really mattered, things that maybe don't normally come up in conversation. Well, you know what doesn't normally come up in conversation? Like, hey, could you pass the mayonnaise? And do you know about hell? Like, it doesn't normally come up, you know? And so one of the things we talked about that night was truth, heaven, hell, uh, salvation, things like that, right? So I, I invited my buddy, Mike, who I knew didn't really know what he believed about these types of things, but I let him, and there was a portion of the service where you just, hey, turn to your neighbor and explain what you believe about this type of stuff. And so he turned over to me, and what I realized is about a few minutes into his miniature little speech to me was he didn't really know what he believed. And the truth is most people, if you ask, how do you get to heaven, how do you get to hell, and things like that, they give you pretty sophomoric and intellectually dim answers. They haven't really thought through these metaphysical, epistemological questions that are of utmost importance, Right? And so he kind of went on to explain his beliefs, and I realized that they were completely irrational and logically inconsistent. He believed that everyone that he knew was going to heaven, maybe even including his ex-girlfriend, and maybe, and uh, that no one he really knew was probably going to hell. And then I asked why, and he said, well, at least I can tell you, like, why I think I'm going to heaven. And I said, okay, why? He said, well, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I said, are you? Like, I've known you for a while. Like, you kind of suck. No, I'm planning to say that. Um, I said, like, are you though really like, like, and he's like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I haven't like, I haven't like murdered anybody, you know, like, and I haven't done any of that type of stuff. I said, well, can okay, I give you like a me mental exercise really quick? I said, um, imagine that like, and I've given you this illustration in the past, right, that like you're, you wake up tomorrow morning, you hear pots and pans clinging around in the kitchen, so you go out to your kitchen and you see that there's a stranger in your house making omelets. Like, dude, what the heck? Get out of my house, bro. Like, what are you doing in my house? And no, no, don't worry. I'm a good person. I'm a, I'm a good person. You're like going over like with a bat. Like, no, oh, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Do you want one? I'm, I'm a good person, right? In that moment, that person's goodness has no, gives them no legal right, responsibility, or whatever it is to be in your home. But imagine now the next day, you see an aunt, an uncle, a grandma, a grandpa you haven't seen in a while, maybe a few months or years or whatever it is. So you walk in, that you hear the Pots and uh, pots clinging again, and you go, is he here again? You walk out, you see again, grandma, gra grandpa, aunt, uncle, whatever, cousin. And uh, in that moment, they don't say anything about them being a good person. They just wave to you and say hi. See, the difference between the two scenarios is that the first is the person's goodness has nothing to do with them allowing him to, them into your home. The second is their, that you have a relationship with them. Heaven is God's home. Your goodness has nothing to do with it. Your goodness doesn't give you permission to be there. It doesn't give you access into there. Your goodness does not give you the affordability to enter into God's home. It's do you have a relationship with the homeowner? Do you have a relationship with the king that created heaven and created earth and has allowed you occupancy into his kitchen? 
Mike, you think you're a good person. All right, so, so Mike, have you ever, uh, you ever watched porn before? Yeah, like before this conversation, sick. All right, uh, have you had sex with your girlfriend before? Like, I know you have, you know, like, I was like, yeah, I've, I've done that. Have you lied before? Yeah, have you stolen something before? Yeah. Um, have you, uh, I don't know, put anything in front of your relationship with God? It's called idolatry. Have you done that before? Yeah. Mike, Whew, I just gave you a handful of like the Ten Commandments. Like, it doesn't look like you're doing so good, buddy. Like, and by the way, I'm in the same, I'm in the same boat as you, right? But like, like, like it, you didn't seem like you're doing too good, right? Like, it doesn't sound like you're a good person, right? He's like, I, 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 and this isn't my words. These are Jesus' words, right? Like, I feel like I, maybe you're not a good person. Maybe I'm not a good person, right? In fact, let's turn to the words of Jesus in the book of Mark and see what he says. He says this. He says, no one is good except God alone. No one's good except God alone. As I begin to kind of realize he's explaining this, that he was in a hard time kind of articulating what he believed about heaven and hell and how to get to heaven and not go to hell. I believe, I realized he was in a hard time articulating this because he was trying with every breath in his lung trying to soften the blow of hell. He had a really difficult time wrapping his mind around the idea, right, that maybe someone that he knows could go to hell one day that could end up in hell. I can resonate with that, right? I hope you resonate with that, right? Because hell sounds like a terrible, horrific place. In our minds, we're not like fans of like people going there, right? Especially right, the way the Bible kind of describes it. Let me just give you a few verses. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 49 to 50. says this. The angels will come and separate. I want you to highlight the word separate. We're going to come back to that. The wicked people from the righteous. Throw the wicked into the fiery furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, it means like you're grinding your teeth because of agony, of pain, something like that. It doesn't have to be physical pain. It could be emotional, spiritual, relational pain. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will be punished with the eternal, highlight the words, destruction, forever separated from the Lord, from his glorious power. Matthew 25.41, the king will turn to those on his left and say, away from you, you cursed and ones into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and, the de- and his demons. Revelations 20.10, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joined the beast and the false prophet. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever and ever and ever, right? That doesn't sound like a place like you and like your fiance are looking like, let's go there for our honeymoon, right? That sounds like a great place, right? That's not a good place to go, right? So then for a moment, maybe just kind of biblically and philosophically, maybe give us a window into what hell potentially could be like. I'm not gonna spend a, and that's not the question I'm answering, what is hell like? I'm answering the question is why could a God send people to hell, a good loving one, merciful one? So I'm gonna spend more time there, but let me just kind of for a moment, maybe give us a window into what hell potentially could end up looking like. I believe it's probably more of a place of torment than torture. Torment than torture. Torment is an internal. Torment is an external one. For those of you guys, my wife, she's, shared with, with us before that she really struggled with depression so much that for many years she had to be on uh, medication for it. And the way that she describes depression, I've never suffered with it or uh, from it, is it's like a torment. There's a sense of hopelessness that just permeates your life. You don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to do anything. It's not like the external world is torturing her. Someone's coming into her room and hitting her. That's not happening. It's an internal struggle and disposition, right? Let me read you actually a quote um, from uh, Tim Keller. He's a famous pastor and he says this that I think is really fascinating about hell. By the way, the word that uh, Jesus used in Scripture about hell is the word Gehenna. Gehenna is actually a valley in modern-day Israel, and in ancient Israel as well. It's an interesting place because whenever Jesus is talking about it, he's getting people to go back to this valley, to this very specific place. He wants to conjure up in- images of what this place was like. What was Gehenna in the ancient world? It was the trash heap of Israel. People would go and bring their trash, and they would burn it alive. In fact, people that didn't have proper burials, they didn't have families to bury them, they would take the dead of the city, bring them there, bury them, or put them alive where maggots would continue to eat on their flesh day in and day out and then eventually the maggots would die because 
their bodies, would, they would have nothing else really to eat. Here's what he says. The image of Gehenna and maggots means decomposition. Once a body is dead, it loses its beauty, strength, and coherence. It begins to break into constituent parts to stink and to dis- disintegrate. So what is a totaled human soul? Let me break it away this way. What, is a, what happens at the, at the end result of death, or uh, uh, end result of sin, death? What is death? Death is the separation of things that ought not to be separated. Your physical body from your soul, that's physical death. And so what happens when your body physical dies? Well, it loses its ability to interact with the world and people around it. Your five senses mute, stop, they're dead. You can no longer interact. Its intended purpose is no longer there. God gave you a body so you can interact with other human beings, interact with the material and physical world around you. So what happens when a soul dies? The word for destruction that I told you to highlight, underline, and circle is the word apoyon in Scripture. And it means not annihilation like our understanding of destruction. It better means totaled. Totaled. What is that? Like, to- like, like you would total a car. It means that something is so broken, it can no longer meet its intended purpose. Track with me on this. He says that when your body physically dies, it can no longer meet its intended purposes to interact with the, gr- with the world that God created. What happens to a soul that's totaled? Follow with me. It says this. Or uh, he says this. It does not cease to exist, but rather becomes completely incapable of all things a human soul is for, reasoning, feeling, choosing, giving, or receiving love and joy. Why? Because the human soul was built for worshiping and enjoying the true God, and all true human life flows from that. His idea is this, that when our souls die, which is what eternal destruction, hell is, that it ceases to be able to do what it was supposed to do. So here is what hell does look like. It probably doesn't look like a guy with a pitchfork running around in spray-painted spray red in like a latex suit. That's probably not what it looks like. That's what Halloween looks like, right? More probably what it looks like is everyone has some type of schizophrenia. Everyone is egocentric and self-centered. Everyone's turned themselves inwardly. Everyone, God has given us a soul that has a, an ability to logically and rationally look at the world around us. And if God has totaled the human soul in a place called hell, then it has no ability to interact with things that are around it. It probably looks more like a deep sense of schizophrenia, and they're being tormented with anxiety and things like that forever and ever and ever and ever, more than it is fire and things like that. Those are all metaphors for what hell could be like. And so I want you to follow with me into the next verse. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to spend more time on here first before I hop into the next verse. I want to go back to thinking more about what hell potentially could be like. Instead of being tortured, which is the modern kind of way that pastors teach about it, fire and things like that, the idea of being completely and 100% tortured with your thoughts. Any moment of anxiety or depression or worry or hopelessness that you've experienced this side of heaven, that's all anyone ever feels in hell. This side of heaven, all people experience something called kindly providences or God's common uh, a common grace is what the more popular term is. And what this means is that a pastor, an atheist, and a murderer, when they eat a steak, does, the, does it taste better for the pastor? No, of course not. It's called common grace, right? So both of them experience good things equally. Both can laugh, joy, have relationships, love, reciprocate love and joy, right? But hell is a place where God's common grace, his kindly providences are void, where he is not. In the book of Isaiah, it says that he has hid his face from it. In other words, it's a place where nothing that is good exists, because if God is the author and sustainer of all that's good, hell is a place where he is not, then what is hell? It's a place where there is no life, there is no goodness, there is no kindness, mercy, hope, forgiveness, joy, peace, laughter, anything like that. That's what makes hell so torturous. So it's probably more of a place of torture rather than being, or a torment than being tortured. 
I heard a story of Charles uh, Peace. He's an English serial killer in the 19th century. And the day he was taken to his execution, he overheard a pastor reading from some of the very same verses that I'm reading today from, talking about heaven and talking about hell. And he turned over to the pastor and he said this, Sir, if I believe what you said about heaven and hell, I would crawl across England on my hands and knees, count it worth my while to save one soul from the hell that you so glibly talk about. And so if you're honest, right, like you're a caring, sympathetic, probably normal human being, you probably have a hard time also, just like Mike, wrapping your head around the realities of hell and that somebody could be going there one day. I mean, no reasonable person should be okay with this idea of, of hell, right? In fact, no matter like how much we don't like somebody, we still don't want people really to go there, right? Unless we're talking about like Hitler, right? Hitler, Hitler we can mentally place in hell because he kind of deserves it, right? You know what's so fascinating is when we think of people who embody evil, our minds immediately go to people like Osama bin Laden. They go to people like Hitler and, and Joseph Stalin and those types of people. We can mentally send those people to hell. But if someone isn't that bad, right, we don't think they deserve it. That's why a lot of us kind of start with the idea that maybe our friends, including us, because we're not that bad, probably are going to heaven, probably not hell. It's kind of like our justice system, right? Like innocent until proven guilty, like heaven bound until proven Hitler enough. That's kind of like the modern philosophy that most people operate under. Well, I'm not, I'm not in this camp. I'm not with like Hitler and Joseph Stalin, right? I didn't murder like 11 million people. So that means I must be. Here's the bad news, and you're gonna hear me talk about this tonight. When the Bible, when the Bible talks about people, when it talks about sin, it doesn't use a gradient. I'm closer to that side than this side. Jesus and Mother Teresa... And, and, and Hitler over there. It talks about categories. It's that you are sinful or you are righteous. You are sinful or you are perfect. And Jesus is the only one that's perfect. And because there's not a gradient and ladder for you to get there, that means that forever we were on this side. And that's why I'm gonna tell you the good news of the gospel tonight. As we travel down that train of thought, we realize that we're actually not that good either. As I listed off some of the things like sin, uh, like lust and greed and, and whatever, and, and, and theft and, and addiction to lust or pornography or whatever it may be, you're going to realize that you aren't that good either. In fact, you have certain standards in your life that you try to measure up with what good and evil is and good and bad is, and you can't even keep those standards that you created. For the men in this room that are addicted to pornography, and the second you watch it, you feel the shame and guilt of watching it, and you say, I'll never do it again, I won't do it again, and then you do it again, and you do it again. See, there are standards in your life that you deem are good that you can't even keep up to. So what do you think God's are if his are perfect? You surely have not kept up with his perfect standards of what right and wrong and what justice really are. And so our friends, right, they can't be going to hell because what would that mean for us? And so the questions, right, that normally kind of bubble up during these thoughts and these conversations are like, what if someone's really religious, right? Like super pious, super religious, and they're really devout, do they go to hell? Other questions are like, what if someone lived a good life, did good things, served the homeless, right? Do those people go to hell? Let me answer both these questions quickly with just two thoughts. The first is the strength of your faith isn't what saves you. The strength of your faith isn't what save you, saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. So imagine like, and I've given this illustration to you years ago, imagine that like you got somebody wholeheartedly to believe that there, when there was a paper bridge, a toilet paper bridge across the Grand Canyon, and wholeheartedly this little person, this person thought that when they shifted their weight from the solid rock to the toilet paper bridge that it was going to support their weight. What is going to happen to this person even though they have faith in this bridge? The second they step off the solid ground onto this paper bridge, they're going to fall to their death because it is not the faith of one safe that saves them. It's the object of their faith. Take, the same, take another person, and this person is timid. This person has doubt in their heart, but their object is a concrete, metal, and sturdy bridge. But they are a person of doubt. They struggle with faith. As they shift from the solid, rocky ground, what happens to that person, even though they have little faith? 
They live. Why? It is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's where you've placed the object of your faith. If you are a Christian, your faith is indeed Jesus Christ, and he's the only one that can save. Number two, you can never do enough good to counterbalance the deep depravity of sin and debt that you and I have before God. Right? Like the illustration that I give the junior high students or high school students is like, how much or how comfortable are you with just a little bit of poop in your smoothie? Like, if we all, I was like, hey, after service, we're all going to Jamba Juice, and like, I took a little bit of bird turd and just put it in all of it. You would go, I don't, want, I don't want the whole thing. Why? The smallest amount of it makes the entire thing unholy. In, in God's eyes, it makes it impure. It makes it dirty. The same as with sin in our lives. The smallest drop of black ink in a, in, in a, in a, uh, in a clear um, thing of water makes the entire thing tainted, right? That's the effect that sin has on us. The Bible says if you've even broken one of the laws, you've broken all of them, is what the Bible says. So Malcolm Muggeridge, the great journalist, and he was a social critic that was really good at investigating human nature and the human conscience. He says this in the early 1900s. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality. In other words, look at the 20th and 21st century. The 20th century was the most bloodiest century in human history. Think, people think, or think we're getting more kind, we're getting more sophisticated. No, we're getting just more sophisticated with our killing, right? You used to have to run at each other with swords. Now we can drop bombs. We've killed way more people in the 20th century than every other year combined. We think like the world is getting more kind. It's getting more loving. It's not. It's getting the opposite. You just hear about it less or you hear about it in different ways. He says, the property of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. How's Jeremiah say it? Jeremiah 17, uh, verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond care. Who can understand it? See, what this quote and verse are actually communicating is that we're not good people who do bad things. We're actually bad people who sometimes do good things. If you don't believe me, I'm willing to believe you'll believe in this quote, or at least this reality. Most people, given the right circumstances, will choose the wrong thing. Most people, given the right circumstances, will time and time again choose the wrong thing because there's something inside us. The heart is deceitful above all else, beyond care. Who can understand it? I need you to hear it this way. Here's the way scripture says it. Man is not just unethical and unkind. He is lost, dead, and doomed without Jesus Christ. In the book of Ephesians, chapter two, verse one, it says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin are death. What are wages? For all of us work, you work at a job, and as you work at that job, you get a wage, an earning. This verse, Paul is telling us that the totality of your life, as you have worked your entire life and been a human being, the earnings and wages of your life should be death, a separation of things that ought not to be separated. Physical death, your body from your soul. Spiritual death, your soul from your creator in a place called hell. Colossians 2, 13, when you were dead in your sin and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our transgressions and sins. See, I need you to hear this. The biggest difference People, what, what separates Christianity from all the other world religions? The biggest difference between Jesus Christ and every ethical and moral teacher who has been deified by man over the millennia is those men, Buddha and, and, and any of the, the Christian cults, any of the gods of Hinduism, those people came to make bad people good, but Jesus came to make dead people live. That is the fundamental difference, is that you are dead to spiritual things, and only Jesus through his spirit can make you alive to want yearn God and, and, and look for his will. And so today, I want to give you six biblical insights, how to wrestle with the topic of hell and answer the question, how could a good God send people to hell? I'm going to answer the very first um, two of them with a question, and it's this. Is the punishment worth the crime? It's kind of a philosophical thing. Is the punishment worth the crime? What is the crime? What have we committed against God? Well, the truth is rebellion, but the Bible calls it sin. I want to pause really quick. Why is God against sin? I need you to hear this. I want you to understand this. People say, like, why can't God just forgive sin? Why can't God, what is, what's up with God and sin? Sin is a deviation from his character. 
In other words, God hates lies because he's a God of truth. God hates lust because he's a God of love. God hates bitterness because he's a God of forgiveness. It is in juxtaposition to his character. God hates adultery because he's a God of relationship. God hates abortion because he's a God of life. See, it's in juxtaposition. It goes against who he actually is. And because he has two things, his impeccability and his immutability, God doesn't change. God is perfect. God is a seity. He's always and always will be. It's a deviation of his character. People like to elevate God's love and forgiveness and push down his justice. They're equal. They're 100% equal. That's why the cross needed to happen. Imagine somebody murders people that you love. And with the most evidence that the law can afford, DNA evidence, they have uh, maybe footage of this individual harming people that you love, your family. And you go to the trial. And the judge, with almost certainty, says, we believe, given the evidence, that you are guilty, but we're going to let you go free. Would that be just? No, this person has committed an offense against you, a crime against you. They have accrued a punishment against you. Therefore, they should live out the punishment in jail or whatever, whatever state they live in. They can get their life taken from them, whatever it may be. A good judge can never wink at a sin like that. God is a perfect judge. You can't just wink at sin. Our problem is we don't take sin seriously enough. We belittle it. Let me bring you to my next point. To sin against a maximally great being means to incur a maximally great wrath. So imagine like, you know, you didn't like my sermon, so after service, you just clock me in the face. Like that sucked, boom, punch me in the mouth. And depending if you're a guy or girl, I'm probably gonna hit you back. And uh, I don't know, we may, I may win, you may win. We'll find out. Imagine the same scenario, but tomorrow, you just find Joe Biden, just dust him off his bike. Just boom, right? Just, just dust the guy, right? What's gonna happen? Dude, you're gonna be sent so quick to Guant- Guantanamo Bay and be like tortured till death, to you, right? forever and ever and ever, right? Why? Right, because... It depends on who you sin against. It's important to know that who you sin against dictates the punishment that you get because an increase in authority creates an increase in punishment. So if you, if you punch me in the face, I don't really have that much authority. You punch Joe Biden in the face, I got some problems. You're probably gonna make it on every single news outlet and no one's gonna see your face till ever and ever again, right? You're gonna have some problems. Why? Increase in authority creates an increase in punishment. God is of the utmost authority. There is no, the buck stops at his desk. He's the highest authority. Oh, it's on my throat. <clears throat> I'm just really passionate. Um, give me one sec. But this is like grainy. It's worse. All right. Um, <clears throat> follow with me the next one. Brandy, can you give me your water, please? I'm going to die up here. Uh, all right. This is the next one. This is actually kind of funny. God's purpose is not torture, like coughing, but protection. God contains the destructive power of sin to protect the flourishing Oh, kill me. <laughs> to, uh, to protect the flourishing of his family. I'll say it to you this way, right? So uh, why do you lock your doors at night? Safety, why? Because you probably, like, I've seen the news in the last, I don't know, any moment. Like, like I heard in, like, Westminster, like, yesterday, there was a guy, some NASCAR driver or whatever, um, that, that, that got, like, stabbed to death, like, by some random, random guy just came up and just, like, from the accounts I've read, wasn't, like, the guy wasn't like, hey, stab me. Like, it wasn't like, you know, like, it was just the guy that came up and stabbed him out of nowhere and then passed away, right? Like, we live in a world that, like, sucks, right? Like, like the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Brandy, you're the best. Oh, man, I'm dying up here. Um, all right, perfect, right? Hey, living water. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so God's purpose is not torture, but protection. God's purpose is not torture, but protection. God contains the destructive power of sin away from his family because he understands the destructive power of sin, right? So you lock your door at night for one reason. You know how sinful the world is, so you lock it out of your house. 
That's why your parents, that's why you, if you live alone or with roommates, whatever it is, you lock your door because you understand that the world around you is not the way it's supposed to be. It's sinful. I'll give you another illustration. Back when I was in junior high, um, my, uh, I, my house was getting toilet papered all the time. Uh, my sister was the popular one. I was a loser, but so she was the one that all her friends were toilet papered in her house. Well, for like three days in a row, my house was getting toilet papered, and my dad got, uh, uh, was tired, waking up all day, so he kind of sleep deprived. And so one night, my house was getting toilet paper again, but for some reason, he doesn't think, oh, there's a bunch of junior high kids toilet papering my house. He thinks there's somebody breaking into my house. My dad was a police officer. He jumps out of bed in his whitey tighties, grabs his gun, heads to the front door, opens the front door, and there's like seven junior high girls seeing this fat old man in his whitey tighties with a gun, right? They're freaking out, right? Why didn't my dad do that? Because he thought that his family was being endangered, so he rushed to protect them. That's the exact same idea, God not, God not in his whitey tidies, but God's doing the very same thing with his family. God knows the destructive power of sin, so he protects his family, runs to protect his family um, from that in heaven by containing it far from us in hell. Sin has a, a destroying capacity to it. Anything it touches, it's a, it's a virus. It brings death and, dis- and destruction to it. Number three, here's the third point. God desires everyone to be saved. In 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, it says this. This is good and pleasing God, our Savior, who wants everyone, highlight that, to be saved and to understand the truth. Let me simplify this for you. God's desire is that everyone comes to know him. But let's just kind of pause and think about this for a moment. If God wants everyone to come to a saving knowledge of him, but not everyone ends up in heaven, the Bible actually tells the opposite of that. It says, for why does the gate that leads to destruction narrows the one that leads to life? In other words, more people that have ever existed in human church, more people that have attended churches have gone to hell, not heaven. So God wants everyone to go to heaven, but not everyone ends up in heaven. I mean, God doesn't always get maybe what he really wants and desires. So how does God solve that? Well, obviously he's all powerful, right? So he could just, you know, shoot people with like a Cupid love arrow, coercing and forcing people to love and choose him, right? Well, no, because God doesn't do that because he doesn't suspend our free will because that wouldn't really be what love is. Love has to be freely given. It has to be a choice. Imagine if you have a, uh, had a boyfriend or girlfriend and uh, you later found out that this person shot you with a Cupid love arrow, meaning that you were forced, you were coerced to choose and to love this person and you had no freedom in the fact to choose this person freely, to love this person freely. You were coerced to do it, to feel these feelings, to want to commit to this person this way, whatever it may be. I know you would feel cheated. See, God has chosen not to suspend our free will to coerce mankind into a relationship with him because he leaves it, leaves it to us. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20, you can hear the relational language here. It says this, here I am, talking about Jesus, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This means that at some level, at some level we have a choice whether to open the door or keep it shut. But you will open the doors of your heart by your choice, not by his force. Here's what this means. Hell is locked from the inside in. Hell is not the choice of God. It's the choice of man who wants to reject God. Hell is not the choice of God. It's the choice of man who wants nothing to do with God. There are only two types of people that exist. People that say, God, your will be done, or they say, my will be done. And God, hell, uh, J.I. Packer, the theologian, says this. Hell is God's respectful gesture to say, okay. Hell is God's respectful gesture to say, okay to that. Your will be done forever and ever and ever. Or my will be done forever and ever and ever and ever. Number four, God gives everyone a fair shot. Follow with me in the book of Romans chapter one, verse 20. This is specifically called the, uh, the verse on general revelation. So everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have, highlight, no excuse for not knowing God. 
See, Paul says that we are left without an excuse because God has given mankind enough to cry out. The Psalms say, the heaven declares the glory of God, that cosmology and biology and even sociology and, human, uh, and the human psychology begs and shows our need for a creator. This is the reason that every civilization has worshipped something. This is the reason that there's a plethora of, of world religions because the Bible says that God is planted with eternity within our human hearts. We all are wired for transcendency, something bigger than ourselves, Right? And so it says that we are left without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God, that every person is left without excuse. Here's what this means if you are in this room, that given the evidence that I have just given you and what I have just given you, you are left without an excuse before God, which brings us to number five. God is the judge, not you. James 4.12 says this, God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? As politely as I can tell you, the people that you feel offended for they will one day stand before God, not me and you. I actually find this to be like a, a, an incredibly comforting reality, that God is the judge, not you and me. For those of you that know my story, you know that I lost my dad a handful of years ago, and um, he was an atheist. And it was sudden, and people often ask me, like, well, you, your dad is an atheist. He didn't believe in what you believe. You, know, you believe he's in heaven. And the truth answer to this is, I don't know. I'm unwilling to make any other way that Jesus is the only way. I don't know if there was some subconscious moment that he was interacting. I don't know. But, but what I do know is if he did not accept Jesus, then I will not see him in heaven one day. But the, the reason that I think I get comfort in knowing that God is the judge is I can rest in his character. See, I, what I know is that when my dad passed away on January 15th, 2015, in a hospital room, is I know that there were tears in the father's eyes. There were tears of joy or there were tears of sadness. Tears of joy that he got to welcome him into heaven forever and ever. Or tears of sadness because he had to see him go away from him forever and ever and ever. But I know that that decision was made from a perfectly loving, awesome, great, grand, but equally just God. And so that my dad got what my heavenly father deemed was perfectly right and just at the end of his life, just like you and I will too. You know, the pain that I feel for my dad is the reason that I do what I do. And I have not adequately expressed what is at stake here today. And the question is that you must deal with who you think Jesus is. So who do you think Jesus is? Which brings me to the very last point for today. That's point number six, is that God made a way. God made a way for you not to go to hell. In the book of John, chapter 14, verse six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, it says salvation. Salvation is what? It's righteousness. It's having a right relationship with God. Salvation comes from no one else, for there's no name given to mankind in which we can and must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller gives this illustration that I really like, and if you were at camp with me this last week, you heard it. I want you to imagine with me that this building was completely on fire. And uh, I'll personalize the illustration. So imagine that this building just immediately lit up in flames. Imagine that my daughter, I have a daughter named Noelle, she's five months, but let's fast forward in the future and say she's five years. And this building's on fire, everyone's freaking out, people are running around and they can't find an exit. There's too much smoke, they're freaking out. Maybe I say that the doors are locked, like we have to figure out a way. And then you see me whistle over and call my daughter back from the sound booth and a little five-year-old runs up on stage. And she meets me in the center of the stage and I bend down and you see me kind of holding her face and just, face and just talking with her for a bit. And I said, sweetheart, this building's on fire. And what that means is that if we all stay in here, something, something bad's gonna happen to all of us. I said, sweetheart, when they built this building under this stage, 
there's actually a little room in there that if you pull the lever, the fire will be sucked out, the sprinklers will turn on here, and all of the fire is going to go into that room. Sweetheart, do you understand what I'm asking? Do you know I love you? Yeah, Dad, I, I know you love me. Are you, are you willing to do that for us? And my little daughter, Noelle, says, yeah, I'm willing to do that. So you see me hold my daughter's hand and walk her over to the little room. I drop her inside the room. She looks back, pulls the lever. Immediately, all the fire gets sucked out of this room. The sprinklers turn on, and you see with one last glance the fire enter into that room, and she's killed. Now imagine you saw me get up and walk out that door, or that one, or that one, or that one, maybe the one in the back. What would you think of me as a father? I allowed my little daughter to be burned alive when I knew there was another way. What would you think of me? You think I was vindictive, malicious? You think I was evil? You think I'd be a child abuser and a child murderer? In other words, if there was another way, that's not what I would have chosen. If other religions could get, out, get us out of this burning building, I would choose that. That's not what I would have chosen. You think I was an evil and malicious father. There's only one way to salvation, one way to be saved, and it was through that. See, God made a way, and that's incredible news. He made a way for safe passage from our souls, but you have to make that decision. And so here's the reality. Each man, woman, and child will stand in front of God one day and give an account to him of their life. You will stand before him and be found guilty as you stand there trying to plead your own case saying, well, I thought I was good enough, or I I was religious in this religion. Or you will stand before him and be found innocent as Jesus pleads your case on behalf of you. But those are the only two options. In the book of Genesis, there's a famous story of Jacob and a man named Esau and their father Isaac. If you're here for our Idol Factory series, I, I share their story a little bit with you. Jacob is this interesting encounter where he's wrestling with God. And he doesn't actually know he's wrestling with God. God asks him the most interesting question after Jacob makes a weird petition to this man. He doesn't know that it's actually God. He says, I'm not going to leave you until you bless me. God asks him the most extraordinary question. Do you know the question that God asked Jacob? What is your name? What? God knows all things. That's a perplexing. What is your name? Well, my my name's Jacob. Why do you think God asked him this question? Because just a few years earlier, he was with his blind father, Isaac, and he stole the blessing and inheritance that was supposed to go to Esau. He was pretending to be someone that he wasn't. He was pretending to be someone that he wasn't. And now he's kneeling before an all-seeing Godfather. He's kneeling before an all-seeing Father, and God says, who are you? And in that moment, he immediately went, I'm Jacob. Here's what this means. God cannot bless your life until you come to an accurate understanding of who you really are. You will never meet Jesus until you actually understand how much you desperately need him. You will never see the glory of the cross, the good news of the cross, until you understand the wicked situation that sin has placed us in, that we're deserving death, but because of the cross that we can get life. I've said this time and time again, that we are not mistakers who need a second chance. It's not the reason that Jesus died on the cross, that we are sinners who desperately need a savior. This is why one of my most favorite verses is the Christmas verse. In the book of Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says this. And she, talking about Mary, shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. I'm going to invite the band on up. They're going to lead us one last song. And as we are led to this next one song, I just want to talk to two people maybe that are in this room right now. The first is the person that's made the decision to follow Jesus Christ. You know, Scripture tells us that we bring nothing this side of heaven to heaven with us other than human beings. Nothing. You're not going to bring your guitar. You're not going to bring your car. You're not going to bring anything but other human beings. So, other human beings. So who are you going to heaven with? You know the cure for hell. 
Imagine that you knew the cure for cancer and you kept that to yourself. How malicious, how evil of a human being would you be? You know, for the cure for something that's way worse than physical cancer, eternal separation from God. I want to commission you. I want to ask God to impassion you to be as passionate as he is about lost people. In the book of Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says, Jesus gives us his purpose, his mission statement. He says, for I've come to seek and to save the lost. If you are a believer in this room, you are a minister because every, every member of God's family is a minister because you have a ministry. You have a sphere of influence of people around you that are looking to you. Ask God to give, to, to work within your heart, to, to help lead those people to him. The last group of person I want to talk to here today is the person that hasn't made the decision to follow him. I want you to know that he has moved heaven and earth, brought into the person of Jesus Christ so that you and I could come to a saving knowledge of him. Last thing I'll say is this. You can't live wrong and die right. Culture would have you believe this myth. You get to live as you want. You get to be your own master. You get to be your own God. That was the very same thing that the certain serpent whispered into Adam and Eve's ear. You can live as you want. You can be a God. You can't save yourself. You don't get to live wrong and die right. There's but one person that can make you right. There's but one person that can put you in right standing with God, and that's Jesus Christ. Well, next few songs, I want you to reflect on those realities. Let me pray for us. Father, today I, I am thankful, God, that I deserve death. I deserve hell. I deserve eternal separation. But God, you gave me life. So Father, I ask that you would continue to move in our hearts so we may be people of love. We may see your love. And if there are people here, God, that are far from you, that walked in condemned, I pray, Lord God, that you'd work in their hearts so they could leave justified. Father, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening and have a blessed day.